is church a place where certain things happen? Or is church a people who do certain things? Is church primarily a place where certain things happen? Word and sacraments. Or is church primarily a people who do certain things? If everyone's a minister, every member ministries, then church is about what we are doing. And the mission of the church is undermined. Namely, the priority of God's work over our work. Dr. Michael Horton writes, then our works take precedence over God's works and salvation, and the church becomes simply another group of moral, social, and political activists. However, precisely because the church is first of all a place where God does certain things, it becomes a people who belongs to the new society that is being formed in this present evil age. If church is first of all the place where God does certain things, then before we do our things, before we serve, we must first be served. Before we love, God first loves us. That's church. That's worship, the divine service where God first acts, where God serves. Yes, God serves in worship. God takes the initiative in worship and God redeems and God renews and then we respond with the thanksgiving and we respond with a life of gratitude and thanksgiving to God for all that he has done. Therefore, church is the essential business of all essential businesses, and nothing can take this business away, for God is over all forever. Amen. Amen. And this morning in Samuel's farewell address, I want to show you what happens in church. Certain things happen in church. And what happens in church is God. God happens. And God happens through certain things and through certain men. So let us see what happens. In chapter 12, beginning verse 1, And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you said and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I'm old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Now, this walking that Samuel is referencing is his ministry. He has been a minister in Israel since his youth. And as a minister, we have seen Samuel in the previous chapters that he has been a very faithful minister, very faithful to the word of God, proclaiming and preaching the word of God. We also see from this text that he's been faithful with church discipline. Look at it. It says, and my sons are with you. His sons are with Israel, simply with Israel. They're not over Israel anymore. Remember, they were worthless ministers. And it appears from our text that Samuel had disavowed their vows. And now they're just simply not over Israel as ministers, but they are simply with Israel. And Samuel's been faithful to God's word. He's been faithful to God's law. They asked for a king. God had demanded that Samuel give them his king. 
and Samuel obeyed God's word. He obeyed God's law. He was a faithful minister in all his walking before Israel. Now, Belgic 29, the Belgic Confession, our faith states, Article 29, that we ought to discern diligently and very carefully by the word of God what is the true church. The true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. And these are the marks of the true church. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel, makes, of the, makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments, and practices church discipline for correcting faults. And so by Belgic 29, the church is a place where certain things happen. And Samuel led Israel with these things. And now at the end of his ministry, holding court one last time, he puts himself on trial. Have I been faithful, he asks, verse 3. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord, before his anointed. Have I taken anything? Have I defrauded you in any way? He basically says, bring out the books, rewind the tapes, Let's look at my ministry. Have I been faithful? And he was blameless. And so Israel vindicates, vindicates him. Verse 4, they said, You have not defrauded or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. So Judge Israel says, No, you are good. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you and is anointed this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. The church vindicated Saul, Samuel, completely. He was a faithful minister. And he was a faithful minister because he was a faithful under-shepherd. You see, ministers are under-shepherds, under the great shepherd. And so Samuel speaks of the great shepherd in verse 6. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. You see that the Lord performs. The Lord performed for Israel. The Lord, Yahweh, served Israel. And Israel's history is literally the history of Yahweh caring for his people as the great shepherd of the sheep. And Samuel, as as an under-shepherd, cared for God's people the same. And because God cared for his people and served his people in a certain way, Samuel cared and served his people in a certain way. And since God uses certain things, we see here God ordained certain men. He ordained Moses. He ordained Elder uh, Aaron. He ordained people to serve, to bless his people. And as God does certain things, so should these ministers. What things are those? These are the things we will see. Verse 8, when Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed, oppressed them and your fathers cried out to the Lord, the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And they forgot, but they forgot. They forgot the Lord their God and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against him and they cried out to the Lord. We have sinned because we've forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Now deliver us. So the Egyptians oppressed Israel. What does it say? Israel cried out. And then other armies persecuted and went after Israel, and Israel cried out. And so we begin to see Israel's history. Uh, Samuel is is explaining redemptive history. He's explaining Israel's history. In Israel's history, there was crisis, 
They cry out to the Lord, and the Lord delivered. And that will be Israel's history from here on out. There will be crisis because of sin. There will be crying out because of their misery. And there will be salvation by God. That's Israel's history. And we see it here. They cry out, the Lord delivers. And we see in this history that salvation is God's thing. That is what Yahweh does. He saves his people. That is redemptive history. And behind redemptive history lies covenant theology. Now notice the crisis followed Israel's sins because they forgot the Lord. It says, but they forgot the Lord, verse 9. Israel forgot the Lord, and look, God sold them in. Yahweh sold them into the hand of Sisera. They forgot God sold them into slavery. These are the covenant conditions of the Mosaic Covenant which we find in Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28, God gives blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. If Israel is obedient in the land, blessings. But if disobedience, curses. So for example, Deuteronomy 28, 25 says, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. If you are disobedient, if you forget the Lord, Deuteronomy 28, 25 says the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. And they were sold into the hands of their enemies. That's covenant theology. Now, covenant theology is important for us to understand, and the church must practice it. And it shows us why Israel needed to be saved. Israel needed to be saved, not because Yahweh, who was overseeing them, was weak and powerless. Israel needed to be saved from God. (laughs) Israel needed to be saved from God's holiness. For God is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity upon those who do not keep my commandments, but showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do you hear the works principle there? Do this and live. Practice these things, blessings, disobey, curses. That is the Mosaic covenant, blessings and curses. Yet also in this same text, there's another principle at play here. You see, when Israel repented of their sins, they cried out to the Lord because of their sins and misery, because of their failures. God cursed them, but then because they cried out to the Lord, He delivered them. That's something else. That's another principle. When Israel repented of their sins, Yahweh responded graciously and saved his people. This isn't works. This is grace. And here we find the distinction between the law and the gospel. In the law, God commands. He requires. And he punishes. He punishes those who do not keep all that is written in the book of the law and do them perfectly. Yet in the gospel, God gives what he requires. In the law, he demands righteousness, but in the gospel, he gives it freely. In the law, those who keep the commandments receive life and blessings, but in the gospel, those who believe receive life and blessings. And he rewards us by the gospel with grace, as if we've never sinned nor been a sinner, but as if we've been perfectly obedient, as Christ is obedient for us. 
So in the law, God demands. In the gospel, he gives freely. And not only is this not only for us in the new covenant, but covenant theology also shows us how the Israelites were saved in the old covenant. You see here, the Israelites were saved not by this works principle, do this and live, but they were saved ultimately by grace and by the promise of God's grace and mercy. And all the promises of God are found in Christ. Jesus Christ is the yes and amen of all God's promises. Jesus Christ is the yes and amen of all God's people, past, present, and future. And covenant theology shows us that Jesus Christ is the end and goal of history itself. And covenant theology shows us that Christ is the purpose of history. And covenant theology shows us that man needs nothing more than Jesus Christ. And the church needs to practice nothing more or less than Jesus Christ, proclaiming Christ and him crucified. And so the church must do the things that lead us to Christ. And those things must unite us to Christ more and more, to our faithful Savior. For Christ rescues us from the curse of this covenant. Christ is the one who rescues us from the curse sanctions of the law. Verse 12. So that was their fathers. And then he turns to the Israelites that are before them, before Samuel. And when you saw Nahash, the king of Ammonites, and came against you, you said to me, now here's a, here's a distinction. The forefathers, when the forefathers saw crisis, the forefathers cried out. But now those standing before Samuel, when they faced crisis, they didn't cry out to the Lord. They cried out, give us another king. No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. So they didn't cry out. They had crisis, but they did not cry out to the Lord. So there's something missing in redemptive history, that crying out to the Lord. No, they cried out, give us another king. Verse 13, and now behold, the king whom you have chosen, whom you've asked for, behold, the Lord has given you what you've asked for. They didn't trust the true king. They placed their hope in another, and the Lord answered, here's your king, a worldly king, the king you deserve. And they sinned against the Lord. But notice verse 14 begins with a conditional. Notice the condition, if, I want to underline that, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. So then again, there we find that works principle. Covenant of works. That works principle. Merit. If you do this, it's Deuteronomy 28 again. If you do this, Blessings. And so we expect the curses, right? And guess what happens in verse 15? But if, conditional, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So there's those blessings and those curse sanctions once more. So God gives Israel a hope. In the midst of their sinning against the Lord, they didn't cry out to the Lord, but the Lord blesses them or he gives them a future or a hope for a future. Though they sinned against the Lord, here comes the Lord again with a hope and a future. And the hope in the future is conditional though. 
if you do these things, if your king does these things, blessings. If not, curses. Here's the conditions of the Mosaic covenant again for Israel. Blessings and curses. Much like the blessings and curses we find in the beginning. When God told Adam and Eve, if you obey the promise, paradise, right? The promise of paradise. But if you do not obey the promise of death. And the same here with the promised land. Have you ever wondered when you look at these conditions, how the promised land can be a promised land, but it's based on conditions? doesn't really sound like promised land as much as obedience land. Obey and get this. doesn't really sound like promise, does it? How can it be called the promised land when it has these works, this merit, this works principle attached to it? Do this and gain it. Failure, you don't get it. I thought promises were just given freely. Well, the answer is covenant theology answers the question. You see, it is the Mosaic covenant do this and live just like it was in the paradise arrangement with Adam so that Christ could be born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus Christ becomes the second Adam who fulfills the works principle. Jesus Christ fulfills the if conditionals. And he was perfectly obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he gained the promised land and now freely gives it to those who believe. So the promised land is the gospel land. The promised land is a gospel land, freely given of God. So good news. Here's a free gift, heavenly riches. Heavenly riches innumerable, earned for you by Christ. And the gospel becomes more than just mere deliverance. It becomes a new life, a new life of glory that is ours now. If you receive this gift, this promised land by faith, and if you believe and receive, it is yours now. Delivered from destruction, and you have the gift of eternal life. A heavenly country. Now, until you know you need deliverance, until you know that you need more than this life, you're never going to want the gospel. So what Samuel has done in these conditions, and what he's done by recounting Israel's history, has shown Israel's history, their sins and their miseries, and how there was crisis, they cried out, the Lord delivered, but not this present generation. They had crisis, but they didn't cry out to the Lord. They're not seeing their sins and misery. And so Samuel must do something further to show them their sins and misery. So he gives them a sign, verse 16. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing the Lord will do before your eyes. He's going to give them a sign of God's glory to show them He's going to show them a holy God that they might tremble before him and turn and cry out to the Lord, and then he will deliver. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord, verse 17. I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourself a king. Now, you might be thinking, how is thunder and rain you know, going to show the glory of the Lord. I mean, we see thunder and rain all the time. The answer is in the wheat harvest. And it, is it not wheat harvest? Wheat harvest is the fall. This is the fall harvest. And in the fall harvest in Israel, there, 
was no rain. Getting rain during the fall harvest would be like us getting rain during the fire season, right? We want rain so bad during the fire season. And I'm not talking about this little light sprinkle that we might get during the fire season where there's kind of like a little mist. You know, what, what do we need during the fire season? We need a goalie drencher, right? We, <laughs> but they don't come. And so here's the awe. Verse 18, Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. So the minister spoke the word of the Lord, and it thundered and rained, and it says, and the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Now, there's two things going on here. Yes, they greatly feared Samuel and the Lord because he spoke, and the rain and thunder came. But you don't want thunder and rain during harvest. Farmers out there, right? You don't want your harvest. You don't want thunder and the rain, the powerful rains that come with this kind of Thunder and rain, it destroys the harvest. And so what's happening here in this text is Yahweh is saying, these curse sanctions are real. And Samuel is saying, look how easily God can take everything from you. He can take away your livelihood. He can take away the very bread that you depend on. And that's what happened in this rain and thunder. Crisis. It woke the people up. And now they finally cry out to the Lord. And the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask ourselves for a king. Samuel showed Israel the holiness of God. And that is what we must display in church. We must display the glory of God from his word. And when you practice the word of God, which is law and gospel, we must see our sins and misery. And we must see our sins and misery in the light of a holy, holy, holy God. And we cannot lose sight on the majesty of God. We cannot lose sight in the holiness of God. You see, we do have confidence to enter boldly before the Lord, do we not, as Christians? We come boldly before the Holy Trinity. But that doesn't mean we come any way we so please. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 3. Paul says, Ephesians 3, verse 10. I think it's verse 310. Or is it 410? Now I'm lost. I'm lost in the Bible. Should have wrote it down. Well, he talks about in Ephesians, and I know it's here. Note to self, always write down your text. <laughs> anyway, he talks about the, uh, in Ephesians somewhere. I know it's here. Now I'm just totally lost. He talks about the confidence we have before God, and then he says, and for this reason, I bow before the Lord. Yes, we have confidence to enter before a holy God, and we come boldly before a holy God, but we come on our knees because he's holy. And that's that kind of covenant theology we need, that covenant theology that preserves the holiness of God and that preserves the acceptable worship of God, worship with reverence and awe, worship that leads to repentance. And that's what we see God doing here. He shows Israel their sins and misery. They behold his glory in this sign and the people turn in repentance. They turn, they repent from their sins and the, this holiness of God led the people to repentance. And we must Seek this same fear of the Lord. We must fear this holy God. 
For only then will we seek the holiness of God. You see, the, the holiness of God is a condemnation. Jesus says, be holy for I am holy. Who here can say, I am holy? There's condemnation before the holiness of God. But don't forget this either. There's salvation in the holiness of God because Jesus says, I am holy. And Christ is our holiness before God. And he is our savior. And there we find peace and hope. Hope in a holy God who restores. And so Samuel says, verse 20, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all of your heart. He says, hey, you've been very evil. Hey, church, you're evil. But don't worry. You're sinners, but don't worry. What's this? This isn't works. This isn't the Mosaic covenant. This isn't works principle. This is the covenant of grace. This is a future and a hope. And it's the church doing certain things. Verse 21, now do not turn aside nor empty uh, after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Don't turn aside to idols. They're empty. They're worthless. They don't do anything. Don't put your hope in kings. Put your hope in the Lord. You know, sin may satisfy temporarily, but in the end, it only leads to death. Lasting comfort is found in a savior. Verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people. And that's a call to faith right there, is it not? For the Lord will not forsake you, no matter your sin. And don't think, oh, I, I, I'm just too big. I'm too big of a sinner. No, God's much greater than your sin. There's never, God has never saw a, a sinner sin and thought, wow, I can't handle that one. <laughs> wow, that? Oh, I can't do anything about that. God's never saw a sin and thought, well, bl- the blood of Jesus is, not, is pretty powerful, but not powerful enough to wash that away. Never. Verse 22 is a grace greater than all your sin. The Lord will never forsake his people. Here's a call to faith. You cannot outrun this verse. You cannot outrun God's grace. You cannot outsend God's grace. Romans 5.20, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace abounded all the more. That's verse 22. Grace abounded all the more. Though Israel is sinful, though Israel is evil, grace. And why grace? For his great name's sake. Grace because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Grace because of promise, not law, not works, promise. And this is the gospel in the old covenant. Because love endures forever. Because Christ is a perfect sacrifice. Verse 23, moreover, he says, Samuel, as for me, Samuel, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. So Samuel will continue to be a faithful minister. 
He will continue to serve Israel. He will continue to deliver because God will always deliver and care and serve his people. That's what happens with God. Grace, love, and the gospel. Verse 24, he says, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. Now notice verse 25. He concludes his farewell speech with a threat. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Samuel ends with a threat because Israel's gravest concern was not the lack of godly leadership. Israel's greatest concern is the holiness of God and a wrath that is being revealed against sinners. No king, no king could put away this wrath. No earthly power, not even our certain things we do. You see, this threat preserves for us the promise that Christ is the great deliverer of Scripture. He is the only one who can take away the threat, who was perfectly obedient to Deuteronomy 28. Christ perfectly obeyed and received from his father the blessings of approbation. Well done, good, well done, good and faithful servant, but he became a curse. to deliver us from the curse of sin and death. That by his life we might live, by his death we might be delivered from the wrath of God. So in the place of fear, we now have hope. And we cry out to the Lord and we know salvation comes for salvation, love, grace, peace, understanding, hope, joy. These are the things of God. And he gives them through the things that happen in church. That is, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. And by the things that happen in church, the word and sacrament, we receive Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is what's happening at church. The gospel is what's happening at church. And we are being redeemed and renewed by his spirit through his means. And we call them the means of grace. And this is the Reformed Church, a divine service, where God first serves us, where God takes the initiative, and through his word, he is redeeming and renewing us after the image of his only begotten son. And this is what church is all about. And there is no greater essential business. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.